okay, guys? Mike coming through, all right? Yep. As Rosie uh, prayed for, please do remember John Wark as, as he goes on Wednesday to this uh, pre-application discussion regarding our Malone Avenue site, and, and do also uh, pray for Hike as he heads back out. A couple of really significant things happening this week that we, we just want to pray into. This is uh, our last week of this series, or at least it is, it is for now. It, it's our final chance to treasure one of the questions that, that Jesus asked in Matthew's gospel. And I think since about March or April time, we, we have looked at something like 15, maybe, maybe a few more, 15 of Jesus's questions. Here's just a few of them to remind you. Who do you say I am? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Why are you so afraid? Why do you doubt? Do you believe I'm able to do this? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Just a selection of the questions Jesus asked that we have looked at. Apparently, Jesus asked something like 307 questions in the four Gospels, which is why I might pick up this series again and actually look at some of the questions, for example, that Jesus asked in another one of the Gospels. And Jesus used questions, and we've said this time and time again, as one of his, not, not his absolute favorite, but as one of his favorite teaching tools. Because what we have, again, emphasized is questions have this ability to take people on a journey of discovery. Because when someone asks you a question, you feel the need to respond to it, or at least it causes you to think. Well, today we come to one of his last questions. In fact, according to Matthew and Mark, the last words that Jesus speaks before he dies are in the form of a question. I think it seems fitting that, that, that Jesus, who is so full of questions during his life, would have a question on his lips as he approaches his death. But the question... The one that we're going to look at this morning is different. It's, it's different from any of these that are on the screen. It's different from the 306 other questions he asked. It's not a rhetorical question. It's not a question to engage people necessarily, although it's a question that draws us in. It's a question that stands alone, which is ironic or it's appropriate because the question itself is an expression of isolation. It's a raw question we're going to think about this morning. It's one that's, that's filled with emotion. And although we think it should be asked in a kind of hushed tone, it should be asked quietly. According to Matthew chapter 27, it's a question that Jesus cries loudly my God my God why have you forsaken me and the question just hangs there suspended in silence unanswered many people have tried to answer this question God didn't Sounds like an expression of despair. Hopelessness. 
even doubt. It's an agonizing question. Difficult to hear the question, especially given who it is that's asking the question. And so let's not be too quick in our attempts to explain it. Let's not be too quick to look for ways to soften the shock or the disturbance of this question. Bible commentators, preachers alike, are often quick to interpret this question in ways that might make it easier to hear. I don't want to do that this morning. I really don't want to do that. And so I'm not going to cover every issue that's raised by this question. I'm going to disappoint lots of people, as I often do. But I want this question to just hang suspended in the silence unanswered. Why? Well, because we need to recognize, we need to acknowledge, we need to respect its honesty. These words of Jesus on the cross are a response to life's injustices and the apparent absence of God. And I'm not trying to trivialize or downplay the uniqueness of what Jesus went through on the cross, and I'll say more about that in a moment, but for many, many people, there are times whenever life's injustices and the apparent absent absence of God are all too personally real and raw. And therefore, this question resonates with many, many people at some level. It may resonate with you here this morning. Many people have asked the question down through the centuries during the past week. Many, many people have asked the question exactly like this. Let, let me give you an example from years ago from the psalmist. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? These kind of questions are perfectly legitimate. Darkness and dark times are a reality for many people. And on this occasion, Jesus doesn't banish the darkness with a statement of faith. Rather, his response is an anguish question that's left unanswered. And for some of us, many of those questions, they haven't done so already. Some of you, and I'll be really honest, and some of you know some of the situation that I'm going through at the minute. I'm asking these questions. Why have you forsaken me, God? Why have you forsaken my mum in that dark place? Please stand with me for the public reading of God's word as we set this question in context. Let's stand together. This is Matthew 27. It's reading from verse 45. The words are on the screen as some of you have asked me to do. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Some people think that because that 
phrase, Eli, Eli, it sounds like the start of Elijah. I don't know. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine vinegar, put it in a staff, and he offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone, and let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, in the sense is he asked the question again, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion, those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's son, Rabbisit. There is uh, so much in that that we, we could consider, isn't there? For example, we could consider the three remarkable, the three freak events of nature that accompanied the death of Jesus. What were those three freak events of nature? One, three hours of total darkness in the middle of the day. The second thing was this, this earthquake that split rocks. Or the third thing was this incredible sight of many resurrected people, holy people, coming out of their tombs. And then after Jesus' resurrection, it says many of these holy people walked into Jerusalem. What must that have been like? We could look at those three freak events or what about the massive temple curtain that was torn in two from top to bottom which seems to remove or dismantle a barrier that existed between people that is if that was the curtain between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews or it was the curtain that removes the barrier between people and God that curtain that divided off people from the holy of holies look at that or what about the cry from the pagan centurion? Surely he was the son of God. Was this the first confession of faith at the foot of the cross, was it? Or what about the presence of the women at the cross? All the male disciples had deserted Jesus. John eventually wanders back, we know that. But the women, the women were there with him, for him. Throughout. Look at that. And any one of those issues would be valuable to look at, but I want to stick with the question. I want to stick with his question. Oops. Andrew, can you flick it on to the next one? This thing's not working. And the next one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what I do want to do is come at this from a couple of different angles because they are important angles. And, and then I'm going to finish in a little while by considering it as it just stands by itself in all its horror and in all its glory. One of the essential angles to recognize, and, and many of you 
are there already in your minds and thinking. Many of you are thinking, hang on a minute. Was this not a direct quote of Jesus? From where? Psalm 22. A psalm of lament. One third of all the psalms in the Psalter are psalms of lament. There's an entire book of the Old Testament devoted to lament, lamentation. There are more prayers of lament in the Bible than prayers of praise. Although we don't sing a lot of songs of lament. But here on the cross, Jesus echoes the opening words of a lament, a psalm of lament, Psalm 22. Now, laments generally follow a particular pattern. They often begin with an expression of grief, an expression of complaint, an expression of consternation that God is seemingly absent. Or he's not exactly doing what we expect God to do. And then that is usually accompanied by an insistence, a cry, God, will you please be God? And we see this pattern in Psalm 22, certainly in the first couple of verses. Here they are. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is echoing the opening words of this lament, but then it goes on. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. There's the expression of complaint, consternation, dismay. And then a lament often and eventually turns to a plea for God's help. And we find this in Psalm 22. Here's verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. And then finally, in the kind of pattern, or the pattern that laments often have, Finally, a lament ends with an expression of affirmation and trust, a reminder of God's faithfulness, often a reminder of God's faithfulness in the past. Verses 23, I think it is, and 24 say this. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for him. And so someone has summarized the movements of a lament like this. First, God, you're not doing your job. Secondly, God, I need you to do your job. Thirdly, God, I'm confident that you will do your job because you have in the past. Now the point here is that as Jesus quotes this psalm, he would have known the pattern of a lament, as would many of those who heard him. Jesus quotes, yes, just the opening words, but Jesus knows how Psalm 22 ends. Yeah, it begins with a despairing question, but it ends with a great affirmation of faith. Jesus only expresses the agony of Psalm 22. But where the concluding words 
not ringing in his head. And for some people, and I believe there is a lot of truth in it, please hear me in this. That is a really important angle to take as you engage with this question. One explanation. It's one perspective. It's one way of helping us to come to terms with Jesus' expression and cry of desolation. Jesus knew where this was going. But another simpler angle to take is this, still a helpful one, is that as despairing as these words, this question sounds, they are still the words of a believer that is directed at God. It is, after all here, I've just, I think I've highlighted the words on the screen here, my God, my God. The God who seems guilty of absence remains a God who can be approached through prayer. The God who is seemingly absent is still my God. And sometimes that is the closest any of us can come to a statement of faith whenever we find ourselves in a dark place, in a place of agony and anguish. All we can cry it is, my God. My God. Sounds in this question like all connection is gone, all connection is lost, and yet Jesus is still able to affirm the personal relationship, the intimacy. My, my, not just God, my. And both these interpretations, Psalm 22, that personal interpretation, those perspectives are appropriate, they're helpful in gaining a better understanding of Jesus' words, but they must not, I honestly believe, and I want to stress this morning, they must not take away the stinging edge of Jesus' words. We've somehow got to let these words stand as a stark and as a threatening question. It must be how it sounded first time round. My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Cries it again. Spend in silence. Left hanging in the air is he. Then he gives up his. Jesus felt forsaken. In his darkest hour, a freak physical darkness had descended, but it was also dark for Jesus in more than one way. This was, if you like, and many of you are familiar with this idea, this was the ultimate dark night of the soul. And although death is the greatest isolator of all, it is clear that Jesus is not here expressing any kind of fear of dying. Rather, as he faces death, what prompts this heartfelt cry is the sense of being forsaken by everyone who loved him. Even forsaken by God. Jesus felt alone. Staring into the abyss of his circumstances, the horror of the world's sin, the cost of our salvation, it all became all too real. 
And as he was left there alone, the weight of the world's sin on him. With an awareness of the cost of, of our salvation. And the Bible teaches us, and, and how often we, we say, and we quote this from Hebrews 13, it's on the screen. God has said, don't we, don't we say this? God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. People may abandon us, but surely God is the exception. We're never forsaken by God. God accompanies us into the dark times, into the despairing times. And even if God is not absent, he's often perceived to be. And that is what's so agony. You see, no one feels so alone as the one who feels deserted by God. And note the cruel, cruel irony. Next slide, Andrew. The absence of God is only a problem for the believer. The absence of God is only a problem for the believer. And as one writer goes on to say, next slide, Andrew, please. Furthermore, the greater one's faith, the greater the potential for disillusionment when the faith is, is directed towards a God who seems to have left without a trace. It is the one who rejoices the most in God's presence who is the most bereft when God is gone. By this measure, could anyone have felt so deserted, so alone, all alone, as Jesus on the cross? But you know, as we hear this final question, we discover a Jesus who really has experienced the full range of human emotion, including the sense of being forsaken. Jesus was fully God. He was fully human. He wasn't God in a costume that could be shed when things got hard or tough. Jesus was human to the bone. And therefore, as this cry from the cross illustrates, he experienced the perceived absence of God. He genuinely felt genuinely felt what many people I'm not for one minute suggesting we, any of us, could ever experience the kind of suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. But you do not have to experience pain on that scale to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, my question, or what I get from this, is that Jesus' question on the cross communicates to me that even my feelings of being abandoned by God are not foreign to God. Can I say that? Even my feelings of being abandoned by God are not foreign to God. Jesus, who was fully God, hung on a cross. He knew what it felt like to feel completely banned. My question of God's absence 
is God's own question. And therefore, this despairing question of Jesus on the cross, this final question, before he lays down his life, gives his life as a ransom for many, as he said he would do in Matthew chapter 20. This question may end up for me, for you, for so many people in so many dark places at the moment. This question may end up being the most important and helpful question that Jesus ever asked. Because why? It enables me to find hope. It enables me to know that despite the darkness and in the darkness, God understands. And for those who feel forsaken, for those who feel alone at the moment, for those who feel abandoned ever, embrace this question. And allow it to refresh your perspective and allow the one who first asked it to draw alongside you and to say, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We're going to close with a song that we all know how deep the Father's love for us. And the reason I ask you, we, we sing this at the end, because it includes the line, the father turns his face away. As this songwriter attempts to capture something of, of the abandonment that Jesus experienced in these moments. But then it's a song that also reminds us in the final verse that it was because of his wounds, it was because of his abandonment that we have been forgiven. And we can be forgiven. So let's stand together and sing how deep the Father is.